come before you today. Truly we pray that our hearts will be open to your instruction. That we will be sincere in our response. And that we will truly be enduring in our faith. We pray for all these things in Jesus Christ. Amen. Not every generation thinks that it is smarter than uh, the previous generation. Ever noticed that? Every generation thinks that it's smarter than the previous generation. And I think that uh, I'm starting to experience that now because uh, as I get older, I feel that I'm part of the previous generation. Right? And what happens is, whenever you tell someone younger than you that you should do something, they'll, you know what will they say? They'll say things like, oh, you know, that's what you used to do in your time. Well, that's old-fashioned, right? And that's history. And basically, uh, what they're saying is, you know what's past is past. That's your time and now is the present. Uh, the writer Leo Tolstoy once said that the past is a series of fables and useless trifles. And what he's basically saying is, what happens in the past remains in the past and really doesn't have any implication for us today in the present. But is that really true? Is that really true that the past has nothing to say to us today as Christians? Or has nothing to say to us today as we stand before God? Because as we've been looking at the book of Deuteronomy, uh, really, as we've been looking, you'll notice that it's all about the past, isn't it? The book of Deuteronomy is all about the past. And even for the audience of the book of Deuteronomy, it's about the past. So as you remember, if you look up here on the slide, okay, if you look up here on the slide, remember, uh, Moses is speaking to the people here as they look into the promised land. But, what does he tell them as they stand on the brink of the promised land? Well, he speaks to them about their journey from Egypt all the way to Mount Sinai. And then the previous generation who came all the way here and rebelled against God and kept walking around and around and around. So really, when you look at Deuteronomy, it's all about the past, isn't it? But the past has an implication, an application in the present. Now the book of Deuteronomy was three sermons. Remember, we, we said this a while ago, that the book of Deuteronomy is made out of three sermons given by Moses on the edge of the promised land. And today we are in chapter 10, which is smack bang in the middle of the second sermon, which goes from chapter 5 to chapter 28. And uh, anybody read chapter 5 to 10 yet? No, I was hoping you would, right? Anyway, it's very important for you to keep reading on the book of Deuteronomy because you learn so much. But chapter 5 to 10, which is the first part of the second sermon, is all about the past. And particularly, the past here. What happens in Horeb? Mount Sinai. And what we see here is that in chapter 5 to 10, it recounts what God has done for God's people, the Israelites, on Mount Sinai and Horeb. And what happens here is the first thing we learn in chapter 5 is that God is a speaking God. God spoke to His people in the past. Right? So in chapter 5, verse 1 to 4, this is what it says. It says, Moses summoned all Israel and said, Hear, O Israel, the decrees and laws I declare in your hearing today, learn them and be sure to follow them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb, which is Mount Sinai. It was not with our fathers that the Lord made this covenant, but with us, with all of us who are alive here today. Verse 4, The Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain. So the first part is what happened in the past? God spoke to the people through uh, the fire at Mount Sinai. But then as we move along in chapter 9, right, chapter 9 what happens? God is an angry God. God doesn't just speak. God displays His anger. 
And chapter 9, verse 7 to 8, it says here, Remember this and never forget how you provoked the Lord your God to anger in the desert. From the day you left Egypt until you arrived here, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Again at Horeb, right, Mount Sinai, you aroused the Lord's wrath so that He was angry enough to destroy you. So at Mount, Horeb, sorry, at Mount Sinai, at Horeb, God spoke. And remember how when God was speaking to the Israelites, and then they said, no, we don't want to hear anymore. We can't hear anymore. Moses, you go up there. And when Moses was up there, what were the Jews doing? What were the Israelites doing? They were making a golden calf. Right? They were arousing God to anger. So in the past, what happened? God spoke. God got angry. But then in chapter 10, the second part of chapter 10, we see that God forgave them. Chapter 10, verse 10 to 11, right? It says, Now I had stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights as I did the first time. And the Lord listened to me at this time also. It was not His will to destroy you. Go, the Lord said to me, and lead the people on their way, so that they may enter and possess the land that I swore to their fathers to give to them. So what happened in the past? God spoke to them, God was angry with them, and God forgave them. And that is who they are today, isn't it? They are who they are today, no, not we, but them, as they stand on the on the edge of the promised land because of what happened in the past. Okay, next slide. Right, because of what happened here at Mount Horeb, sorry, Mount Sinai and Horeb, instead of being dead in the desert, they are, the next generation are now here standing looking into the promised land. And now we come to the application of what happens. Because of what happens in the past, the Jews or God's people have to act in a certain way because God spoke because God was angry and God forgave them. But the most important thing of what happens in the past now comes in this passage in verse 12. Okay, so you look at verse 12 here. Chapter 10, verse 12. You need your Bibles. Okay, open your Bibles, chapter 10, verse 12. It says there, okay, And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God and to walk in all His ways, to love Him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees I'm giving you today. In verse 14, To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set His affection on your forefathers and loved them, and He chose you and their descendants above all the nations as it is today. So if you look at this passage, God didn't just speak to them in the past. God wasn't just angry with them in the past. God didn't just forgive them in the past, but He did something even more important. And this is where you need to pay attention. It says there in verse 14 that God chose them. Look what it says. God set His affection on your forefathers and loved them. Now that's a very important thing, isn't it? Because God chose these people. And you notice here in verse 14 and 15, it says, there's a comparison, isn't it? It describes God owning everything and yet choosing Israel. It says that to God belongs the heavens and the earth and everything in it. It says even the highest heaven, the heavens of heavens. That means everything belongs to Him, but yet, yet, right? The Hebrew word means there's something shocking, something surprising happening, yet He chose you, the Israelites. And the contrast is God owns everything but he chose something really small. See, think of it this way. It's like God owns, imagine God owns all the buildings in Singapore, okay? 
So he could choose to have his office in uh, Shenton Way. Or he could choose to have his office in Orchard Road. Or maybe even Suntec City. But instead, he chose his office in Charlton Lane. Okay? It's something like that. It's, it's trying to contrast how you've got the choice of the whole city to choose, but you choose something small. Right? And then he's sort of saying the same thing about the Jews. Look, I could choose the whole world, but yeah, I chose you as his people. And that's why in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7, which is up here, right, look at what it says here. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7. The Lord did not set his affection on you or choose you because you were more numerous than other people, for you were the fewest of all people. And I think what God is trying to say to his people is what happens in the past really counts. God chose his people when he could have chose anybody, he chose the Israelites. And I think that's a really important thing, isn't it? Do you know what it means for God to choose you? Do you know what it means for God to choose you out of the whole world? See, I remember watching uh, this very old uh, television documentary of uh, Arnold Palmer. Now, only older people know Arnold Palmer, right? You all know Arnold Palmer? He's not the logo with the umbrella, right? Okay? Before the logo of the umbrella was a real, is a real person who was a golfer. You know, he was bigger than Tiger Woods, okay? This guy. And he used to have huge crowds following him. And the crowds which followed Arnold Palmer were so big that they called him, they called these crowds Arnie's Army. Because there were so many people that used to follow him. Anyway, in this documentary about him, uh, there's this whole crowd of people following him as he's playing golf. And, uh, you know, for no reason at all, Arnold decides to walk up to the crowd and shake the hand of one elderly gentleman and start talking to him. And this elderly gentleman, he's smiling, he's beaming from ear to ear. Why? Because Arnold Palmer could have chosen anyone in the whole crowd to go and talk to and shake hands with, but he chose him, isn't it? See, it's not about the crowd choosing Arnold Palmer, it's about who Arnold Palmer chooses to shake hands with and talk to, isn't it? It's not about whether you know Arnold Palmer, it's whether Arnold Palmer knows you, isn't it? That's the important thing. And that's the whole point of this passage. In verse 14, God owns the whole heavens and the earth, but yet He chose Israel. He chose their forefathers. He chose to set His affections upon them. And I think that that's the privilege that we have too, as Christians, isn't it? That's the privilege that we too have when we are chosen by God. See, look at this slide here. Ephesians chapter 1. We are chosen just as God chose His people, the Jews. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. Notice that God chose you to be His people before He even made the world. That means He knew that Andrew Ong would be a Christian before the creation of the world. He knew that, uh, that Ray would be a Christian before the creation of the world. Isn't that amazing? He predestined us to be adopted uh, as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and His will. Not our pleasure and will. According to His pleasure and will. To the praise of His glorious grace which He has freely given us in the one He loves. Now have you thought about that? You know, when you thank God, right, when you, when you sit down and pray at night or during the day, when you thank God, what do you thank God for? Maybe you thank God that uh, God gave you that job, or God gave you uh, health, 
or God gave you that relationship, or God gave you money or wisdom. But that's not the greatest gift that God has ever given you, you know. God's greatest gift to you is that He chose you. God's greatest gift is that He gave you Himself, isn't it? That is the greatest gift that God could give you. See, we are special people. We're not special because, you know, we're particularly good looking. We're not special because we're particularly rich like Bill Gates or, you know, we're very smart. Like, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, athletically we cannot compare with Lionel Messi or Wayne Rooney. But why are we special? We are special because God has chosen us, isn't it? I remember a pastor once saying and asking the congregation, what is it that gives you value in life? What is it that gives you significance in life? What is it that gives you security in this life? Is it your work? Is it your studies? Is it your relationships? Is it your possessions? Well, if we believe what God is saying, what gives us value and significance and security is being chosen by God. That is what Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 14 and 15 is saying. That's what gives us our meaning in life. It is being chosen by God. You see, Andrew, right? I'm Andrew in case you've forgotten now. Andrew, Andrew minus career is not minus Andrew, isn't it? You follow what I'm saying? Andrew minus car or house is not minus Andrew. Andrew minus sport is not minus Andrew. But Andrew minus Christ is minus Andrew, isn't it? Uh, Andrew minus God, without God, is minus Andrew. See, what, what gives us our identity is what God has done for us in the past. Before the creation of the world, He chose you and He chose me. And that is so important a privilege. And because God chose us, right, He expects us to respond in a particular way. And that's what verse 12 and 13 are about. In summary, if God chooses you, God expects you to choose it back. That's what verse 12 and verse 13 are all about, isn't it? It says, And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but but to fear the Lord, to walk in all the ways? And the but here doesn't mean that it is a simple thing to do or, a, or a, you know, an easy thing to do, but the but here means it's logical. Right? It's like, it's like God has chosen you, so the logical thing to do the reasonable thing to do, the sensible thing to do is to choose God back. And how are we supposed to choose God back? Well, this is what the whole of verse 12 and 13 about. The first way we choose God back is to fear. To fear the Lord your God, it says there in verse 12. To fear, that's a strange thing, isn't it? To relate to God, to choose God in fear. Uh, it's not a very popular way to relate to God, isn't it? Because, uh, I mean, in our society today, uh, we put a premium on choice, freedom, independence. And all these things go against fear, isn't it? Uh, when you sit here today, do you fear God? No, it's not something that really immediately comes to our mind, is it? But, it says here very clean, plainly that to choose God, to follow God, is to fear God. Now, why should we fear God? Well, obviously, if you look at this passage, God is someone that we should fear because when you look at chapter 5 to 10, 
He made the Israelites walk in the desert for 40 years so that the first generation would die because they rebelled against Him. We should fear God because it says there in verse uh, chapter 11, verse 2 to 7, it talks about how God, in verse 2, right? Remember today that your children were not the ones who saw and experienced the discipline of the Lord your God, His majesty, His mighty hand, His outstretched arm. See, God is a God to be feared because He can discipline. He can judge. He can, he can kill, isn't it? God is a God who is to be feared. Now, our relationship with God is not uh, like a buddy, you know? You know, God is not our buddy, right? You know that? God is not our pal, you know? Our relationship with God is like to, from a lesser person to a higher person. From a, a subordinate to a superior. From a creature to a creator. We're not equal, right? We're not buddies, we're not pals, okay? So, you know, you might have a good relationship, say, with your boss. Okay, your boss, you know, you, you chat with your boss and whatever. But there's still part of that relationship has a, has a there's an element of respect, isn't it? I mean, I would, maybe you don't fear your boss, lah, right? But there's an element of, of respect. There's an element of, um, you know, I, I can't be too buddy-buddy because this is my boss, right? Or maybe your principal, maybe you've your, your, your got a relationship with your principal. But at the same time, you, you can't be buddy-buddy your principal, right? The relationship is one of a lesser to superior. And God is a God who is a great God and the only God and He judges. And therefore, what happens is, we must, we must fear Him. It says there in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, it says, As obedient people, uh, children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as you, who he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverend fear. See, the fear here is not terror, right? You know, like horror movie, right? The eye or something, right? I don't know. It's not a horror movie, okay? I don't watch many horror movies. But, but it's a reverent fear. It is a respectful fear. Because God is a powerful God who hates evil. Now, I think that if we had this right understanding of fearing God, then in churches today, we wouldn't have so much of a problem in terms of people falling to sin, isn't it? Because I think that when we are tempted to, to maybe cheat or to lie or to look at lustful images on the internet or behave inappropriately with other people, is that because we do not fear God? We do not really fear and see God for this powerful God who can judge and kill us? Is that because we, 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 we don't relate to God or we don't choose God in the way that He should be related to or, or chosen? Because if you really know God and you know God the way the Jews did in the desert, you would say that God is a God to be feared because He just killed my father and my mother and He made them walk around the desert for 40 years because they rebelled against Him. That is a God to be feared. Isn't it? At the same time, Proverbs, right? Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. I, I like this Proverbs. It's very important. Right? It says, to f- The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and fools despise wisdom and discipline. See, true knowledge, the true knowledge of God 
To see him as who he really is, is to know that he is a God to be feared. So are you choosing God? Are you choosing to know God? If you choose to really know him, then you will fear him. And you will fear him in the way that you live. Now let's go back to chapter 10, verse 12. So the first, day that we, first way that we choose God is to fear the Lord, our God. The second way is to walk in all his ways. To walk in all his ways. Now I want you to look at your Bible very carefully, right? Because it says there, to walk in all his ways. It doesn't say to walk in some of his ways, right? It says all of his ways. It doesn't say to walk in all his ways when it's convenient. It doesn't say walk in God's ways when you feel like it. It said to walk in all his ways. Now that's a great command, isn't it? A great overwhelming command of God. That we would, that we will walk in all his ways all the time. And this is not legalism, right? We're not obeying the law for the sake of obeying the law. We're not oppressing, uh, obeying the law to impress people. We are obeying God because He is our God. We are to walk in all His ways. And I think the part of the reason here is because it's like the idea of like a father is like the son, isn't it? We are to walk in all of God's ways. The Jews were to walk in all of God's ways because God was their God. So I don't know whether you know, you've seen this advertisement from Mercedes-Benz where um, you know, the father drives home and there's like shiny new Mercedes-Benz, right? And then his son is playing this really small Mercedes-Benz toy and uh, um, burying it into the ground so that it will sort of grow into a bigger one. Have you seen that advertisement? And uh, what is it really saying? It's like saying, well, the son wants to be like the father, isn't it? So the father drives a Mercedes. When he grows up, he wants to drive a Mercedes too. Now, we're not talking about something so mundane as that, right? Mercedes-Benz. But what it's basically saying is, the Jews, just like we, are God's people and we must live as God's people. And that's why in chapter 10, right, same passage we were looking at this moment, in chapter 10, verse 17 and 19, it says that just as God loves people and treats the alien well, so His people, the Jews, must love the alien and treat them well. Look what it says there, in verse 17 to verse 19. Okay, to look at your Bibles, it's very important to keep coming back to God's Word. It's not Andrew Wong talking here. All right, it's, uh, it's God. So let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. The Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. So, because God loves the alien, right, and gives him food and clothing, what, what are the Jews to do? And you are to love those who are aliens, for you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. See what's happening here? You follow what's happening? God loves the alien, gives them food and clothing. So, you, as God's people, the Jews, you love the alien, for you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. See, it's like a father and a son thing, isn't it? Like the Mercedes Benz advertisement. Because God is like this, so you must walk in all his ways. And you must walk in the ways of God in the way that you treat the alien. And therefore, that's why today I'm not preaching on chapter 12 to 26, right? Because 
You know, for the Bible study, you might have thought, well, you know, maybe we're going to do chapter 13, or chapter 21, or chapter 22, or 23, or 24. But actually, chapter 12 to chapter 26 are all outworkings of walking in God's ways. So they're supposed to walk in God's ways with regard to murder. They have to walk in God's ways with regard to how to treat captives of war. They have to walk in God's ways in terms of how to dispose of dead bodies. They have to walk in God's ways in terms of disciplining children. They have to walk in God's ways in terms of how to return lost animals, right? SPCA. Okay? They have to walk in God's ways in terms of how to use the toilet. See, in every aspect of life, they have to walk in all of God's ways. Same for us as Christians today. So in John, 1 John chapter 2, exactly the same idea, isn't it? We know that we have come to know Him if we obey His commands. The man who says, I know Him, but does not do what He commands is a liar. The truth is not in Him, but if anyone obeys His word, God's love is truly made complete in Him. This is how we know that we are in Him. Whoever claims to live in Him must walk as Jesus did. You notice that? Verse, uh, verse 6, you claim to live in God, you must walk in the same way as Jesus. Same thing as what um, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12 said, right? Walk in all His ways. So are you walking in all of God's ways? In your home life? In your work life? At, uh, you know, your, with your friends, with your colleagues? Uh, your classmates? Whether it's day or night? See, for many Christians, they only walk in God's ways when they're in church, isn't it? Yeah, we only walk in God's ways when we're in church. But really, what God is saying is, because you are now like the Father, you must act like the Father in every way, in every aspect of life. So are you doing that in your life? Are you walking in all of God's ways, in all of your life? Now remember, there used to be this fashion. I'm not really into fashion. Because uh, I create my own fashion, right? I'm a fashion trendsetter. Okay? Now, but I noticed at one stage, right, people used to be wearing these wristbands, which had this words WWJD, right? Okay, remember WWJD? I think it's out of fashion now, because I don't see that many people wearing it anymore. But WWJD basically means, what would Jesus do, right? What would Jesus do? And, and basically, that's what this concept is about. Isn't it? What would Jesus do? In every situation of life, what would Jesus do? How would Jesus walk? And that is the way that you would walk. And that's what this question is asking. That's what this question is posing. If God chose you, you must choose God back. And if you choose God back, it must be that in every aspect of life, you will walk as Jesus walked. So is that you? If if you're not walking as Jesus walked in all your life, then you're not really choosing God. You don't really know God. You're not really relating to God. Now let's go to the last part. Now you may be worried because we've got all these other sections to do, but I'm combining the last, uh, last few instructions, right? It says there in verse 12, we must love Him, we must continue, but to love Him, to serve the Lord your God of all your heart and of all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees I'm giving you today for your own good. Now, look at this passage carefully. Look at it carefully. You notice here that there are three ideas which are all tied together. Okay, look at this passage. Look at the Bible. To love, to serve, to observe. 
They are all tied together. You notice that? Right? To love is to serve God. And to serve God is to observe His commands. And when you observe His commands, you're actually loving God. There is like a, a triumvirate. Right? I won't use the word trinity, but there's a triumvirate, right? Those three things are sort of repeating the same sort of idea. And I think it's very, very important that we, we recognize that to love God means to serve God. To serve God means to observe His commands. Because we, we tend to only think about loving God, right? We think, of, okay, loving God with all our heart, all our soul, and all our mind. But loving God is not the same as, say, loving your wife or your husband. No? Loving God is not the same as uh, loving your parents or even your children. And loving God is definitely not like loving your, your favorite soccer club, okay? But loving God means serving Him as your master, with all your heart, it says there, and with all your soul. Now, I think this part, this verse here, is really, really neglected in, in the Christian world today, isn't it? We always talk about loving God, loving God, loving God. But it says here that loving God is also serving God. And I remember reading this book. Now, I was actually going to bring it to you and uh, share it with you, but I, I, I forgot and I gave it to my dad yesterday. And it's now in Sydney, Australia. <laughs> But I still have the illustration of me, right? And basically, it's by this guy, uh, Gary Smalley, again, the book I've been reading. Uh, and he, he was saying how, you know, he lost sight of God, you know, because he became so successful, right? Being a marriage counselor. But he said that he realized that he wasn't serving God as his master. And he said that every morning now, when he wakes up, he recommits his life to serving God. And every morning he says, who am I living for? Right? Is my heart being ruled by God? Am I serving God as my master in everything I do? Every morning he recommits himself to serving God. I'm saying that's really true, isn't it? Who are we living for? What are we living for? Are we living for God? Or are we living for something else? Are we living for ourselves? Are we living for our careers? Or are we living for our hobbies or our relationships? Something else, but not living to serve God. Because it's very demanding, isn't it? Verse 12, serve the Lord your God with a little bit of your heart and a little bit of your soul. No, it doesn't say that. It says with all your heart and with all your soul. That means He must be the only master in our life. We must serve Him. So anyway, this book um, that I was reading uh, by Gary Smalley, he gives this really funny illustration about how he, he bought this second-hand RV. You know what RV is? Uh, RV is some sort of recreational vehicle where you have a kitchen and a bed inside the car and you can drive. So instead of staying in a hotel, you stay in a caravan park or whatever and then you, you stay in your RV. Lah. Okay, so when you bought the second-hand RV, then the, he found that this second-hand RV became the master of his life. Right? Because he had to spend time licensing it, insurance, giving it insurance, and, and there are lots of problems, so he had to maintain it and repair it. And then, you know, apparently in winter time in America, you have to winterize it, and, you know, put coolant or whatever so that it doesn't freeze up. Okay, so he spent all his time looking after this RV. Uh, right, and until his wife rebuked him, right, and said that, our, he said that, uh, this is a quote that he uses, you know, our toys own us instead of us owning them. I think that's such a wonderful insight into life, isn't it? That sometimes our toys right, become our masters rather than us owning our toys. 
And I think it's really true, isn't it? We, we buy so many things, we have so many things that we need to upkeep and do that they, they, they become our master. We have to do all these things rather than for us owning them. And I remember even for myself, you know, I mean, I like playing golf. And I'm always mindful that golf cannot be my master, right? Okay? Because, you know, you play golf and then you know, your friends are getting better. You say, oh, I've got to go get better too. So then you spend your time going to the driving range, then you read instruction books. Right? Then you think, oh, you know, my friend just got a new golf set. Well, I've got to get a new golf set too. So then, you know, you start going around looking at all these golf things you can buy. And then, uh, you know, you look at the golf magazines. And then you know, other people are getting better. They're getting shinier clothes or better clothes. And, you know, I've got to get better clothes too. And after a while, you know, it's not, you don't, it's not your toy anymore, but the toy is only you, isn't it? And I think that that can be really true. That in our life, we don't serve God with all our heart or soul. So, if you want to look at this passage, really, if you look at this passage, you might sort of think, how come I'm just focusing on chapter 10, the end of chapter 10? Now, the reason is because chapter 11, all the way to chapter 26, are really the details of how to choose God back, of how to fear God, of how to walk in God's ways, of how to serve Him and love Him. But the principle is here, isn't it? The principle is here. The principle is, God has chosen you so you choose God back. That's the logical, sensible thing to do. Now, if you think of your ideal life, your ideal life as a student, think of your ideal life as a worker, your ideal job, your ideal retirement life. What is the picture that you have in your mind? Right? Just, just a moment, right? Just think of yourself, what is your ideal life and your job, your ideal job or ideal retirement? Your ideal life as a student. What does it look like? Well, maybe it's one full of success, isn't it? One full of fun and fulfillment and pleasure, uh, exciting opportunities. But you see, at the end of the day, fun is not our God. Uh, pleasure is not our God. Personal fulfillment is not our God. Success is not our God. But God is our God. God has chosen us and He has put us in whatever situation we're in. And whatever situation we're in, we are to love Him, to serve Him, to obey Him, to fear Him, and to walk in His ways. That is what God has chosen for us to do in this life, isn't it? So in conclusion, I was listening to the BBC the other day, and uh, I had this really strange... Uh, uh, um, program is it's like, like a book club sort of thing uh, where people ring in from all over the world to talk to some famous author you know, there's this guy who wrote this book called The Sports Writer uh, and he's supposedly famous but I've never heard of him and I've never read the book or even heard of it right, but anyway this book uh, is set in Easter time and he uh, was saying that after he wrote the book he went in and took out all the references to Christianity he could uh, in the book because he realized that because he was writing the book set in Easter, there were so many things about Christian stuff in it that people could mistake him for being a Christian. And he said, that's the last thing I want people to know because uh, he wasn't a Christian. He said he was an atheist. Right? So someone rang up uh, to speak to him and he said, you know, you, you know you, you've taken out all the Christian things from the book because even though it's set in Easter, you don't want it, all the Christian references there. You know, so 
you know, what do you believe in if you're, if you're atheist? He says, well, you know, I believe that you can find God. And then the guy said, well, how do you find God? You can find God in literature, he said. Right? You can find God in art. Some people believe you can find God in music. It is the experience of God in this world. Right? That's what he was basically saying. But how different it is from God, isn't it? Because our God, the real God, has appeared in the past and has spoken. He has shown his judgment and anger. He has shown his forgiveness. He has shown that he has chosen us. Because of what God has done in the past, we must live a certain way in the present. And how must we live? Because He chose us, we must choose Him back. We must walk in all His ways. We must fear Him. We must love Him. We must serve Him. We must obey His commands. So the challenge for us today is, are we doing those things? Are we choosing God back? Are you choosing God back in your life? And doing all these things? Because what God has done in the past is real. And He is a real God. And this is the logical, sensible thing to do. That we must fear Him. Because He is a God to be feared. We must walk in all His ways because we are now His people. We must love, serve and obey Him in everything that we do. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear loving Heavenly Father, as we stand before you today, truly help us to see where we stand before you, that you chose us before the creation of this world. You knew our name before we were even in our mother's womb. And because of that, we are now standing before you as your children. Help us, therefore, to choose you back and to follow you and to know you rightly, to fear you, to hate sin just as you hate sin, to hate wickedness and rebellion, to walk in all your ways, that in everything we do we will reflect Christ-likeness, and that we will love you by serving you and obeying you in everything that we do. We pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.